5G wireless networking has a ways to go before reaching the potential its purveyors promised. Now the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, part of the Commerce Department, has a 5G research competition running. It seeks interoperable network equipment. And for more on this, we turn to Deputy Assistant Commerce Secretary for NTIA, April Delaney. Ms. Delaney, good to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm excited to speak with you about all of the stuff we're doing at NTIA. All right. Well, let's talk about this contest that you're doing. You have some companies that are in the midst of this 2023 5G challenge. Tell us about the challenge and what you're trying to do with it. Well, first of all, I can say that the Department of Commerce and Secretary Raimondo have really prioritized accelerating open wireless networks to increase U.S. innovation and competitiveness and really secure a wireless network chain. And so we're hosting a competition to just really accelerate the adoption and the development of what we call open, interoperable, secure, multi-vendor 5G ecosystem. We call it Open RAND. So what this challenge will do is we're trying, through spurring more competition and diverse supply chain, we're trying to bring together through our ITS division, a competition. This 5T challenge is a two-year collaboration with the Department of Defense, the 5G and 5G office, and it's run through our Boulder office, which is a research and development lab called the Institute for Telecommunications Sciences. What we are doing is bringing together companies to really test and work together in the lab to really drive innovation. All right. And then what is it specifically that you're asking the contestants to do? And I guess there's seven companies that have won a preliminary round. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit about why it matters and what the contestants are doing. We have a handful of companies in this country that sell wireless network equipment, and their subsystems really don't work well together. It's a proprietary closed market. And mobile network operators you know, prefer to deploy these wireless networks, and there's many subparts within them. What we want to do is to kind of break apart a lot of these subcomponents that have more of a plug-and-play environment so that there is more competition and more interoperability. And in that plug-and-play environment, we will really you know, drive down costs but also allow there to be more secure and trusted networks, which is a key advantage. So what are we doing in terms of like who is involved and what we're doing? Well, DOD has really worked with us to bring about a host of different companies to come in with RU, DU, and CU components and to really work work in a lab together to see how in a cold configuration environment that we can really plug and play and really drive innovation to see how these multiple vendors can cold pair their technologies. And, you know, this is the second phase of this. And so it is an evolution on the first one. Yeah. And a quick question. You mentioned R-U-C-U-D-U. Sounds like a nursery rhyme. R-U is radio unit. What is C-U and D-U? The DU and CU are different elements that deal with both the hardware and software integration part that kind of interface together. Who would benefit from this interoperability? It's an excellent question. Consumers, because there will be more innovation and more companies that are involved. It'll also allow startups who are not large companies to be able to come in and try and be part of this ecosystem. But most importantly, I think as we break apart the supply chain, we are also able to have, as you know, there are only a handful of companies out there that really are producing radios right now in the international environment. And we want to protect some of these networks that are not secure. And we want our commercial individual and security 
data not to be at risk. And so I think just globally, by having more equipment vendors, we'll be able to really facilitate more trusted networks across the globe and domestically. So I think both consumers, network providers, and also innovators. So it is really, you know, a triple bottom line in a lot of ways. And public-private partnerships, I think, are really important in this arena. We're speaking with April Delaney. She's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information. It sounds like something that the emergency communications community would benefit from because, you know, they've got a real cost issue and interoperability issue in trying to provide emergency communications. You know, that's a very interesting thing. NTIA, across its divisions, also works with our NG911 community and our first net responder network. And yes, I do think that in the long term and maybe even the short term, open RAN technology will allow there to be more cost competitive alternatives to a closed proprietary rack. And as such, really will be able to allow different types and more affordable deployment of public safety communications. Now, I have to say, open RAN is something that people say it's not if, but when. I just came back from Mobile World Congress. You know, there is Cloud RAN, there's almost Open RAN, but pure plug and play is not here yet. And that is why it's really important to come to a lab and to test and to really figure out how each of these different components work together. And let's talk about how the competition works. You got 23 white papers, and then from those, you down-selected people that will get developmental research and development money? Well, I think what has happened is we had different research papers, and then through the different phases, we were able to come down to about seven different providers on Teams 1 and Teams 2 to do this cold integrations. So in this 2023 challenge, what we're doing is bringing these various providers of, you know, like Mavenir or Radisys or Capgemini or Fujitsu, you know, just these different providers from across the spectrum, different components, and to allow them, as we say, it's really important in this cold integration environment to really start speaking with one another. And the contestants that use this independent host lab really say it's an incredible opportunity because across the globe, there are these different pilots that are happening, but to really have a lab where you can work collaboratively is amazing. For instance, in the 23 5G challenge, the contestants will try to establish end-to-end network connections, but then the contestants will test to see if they can transfer a call from one contestant network to another. It's called mobility testing. And this is what happens when you talk on the phone when driving down the highway. The network transfers from one tower to another. Currently, this type of plug-and-play doesn't exist in the marketplace. And so what we're trying to do is just really drive innovation through this collaboration. And I have to say, we wouldn't have been able to do it without the Department of Defense because they have been very involved in looking to develop a more secure supply chain and just this robust U.S. industrial base, you know, both for, I think, our global economic U.S. leadership, but also in terms of our national security and trusted 5G infrastructure. But their ability to help us with this R&D as a U.S. agency is really incredible. And it also will help in the development of what they call open RAN standards and technologies that are in the infancy stages. Obviously, as you come together, it will be very helpful. And this idea of interoperability of equipment, does this extend upward to like Verizon and AT&T and maybe there's one or two other primary generators of 5G bandwidth? Are they interoperable at that level? It's really interesting you say that. Okay, so I just came back from Mobile World Congress. 
and we had global operators, we had our U.S. operators. And what it happens is that operators go to network integrators to deploy their networks. And so it will help them have more choice and what type of networks they can deploy. Because now they are kind of in a closed proprietary network, you know, whether it's Nokia, or it could be two or three different types of Ericsson or what have you that are trusted vendors, but they usually come in a proprietary rack. And so what you'll be able to do is have more choice for them to deploy different type of networks and perhaps in a more cost-effective way. Now, this is still in the testing phase, and so I think that's why you hear from major operators, the, you know, AT&T, different type of operators that this is still in the testing phase and that they want to make sure that their quality is there and the security is there. DISH Network is now going into deployment of some open RAN as well. Interesting. And I guess a final question, what will be the outcome ultimately of the competition you're running? Will it be schematics for equipment that people can make or will it be a set of standards that anyone can build to? Well, I think this competition is really about driving innovation. And innovation, I mean that this truly is mixing and matching equipment. And so what we're hoping that comes out of this is that eventually there will be enough innovation to do major deployments, both domestically and internationally, of open RAN technologies. And in so doing, we're hopeful also that there is greater innovation and things that come out of that testing. You know, that is the end game, but in these different phases as that we're going through them, I think that it's evolutionary and they're starting to look at what will happen in the long term, you know, will be really kind of more integration as we go into 5G and 6G. And then the last thing I will say is that NTIA is also overseeing a $1.5 billion public wireless supply chain innovation fund. We call it the Innovation Fund for short. And it is separate and apart from the 5G challenge, but that also, on the same lines, seeks to drive this supply chain diversification and funding in smaller projects, grants that will allow different companies to do the same sort of thing in independent labs across the country. Our first phase of the NOFO, the Notice of Funding Opportunity, of the Innovation Fund uh, will be coming out in the next month or two, and then it will continue over the next few years. All right. We're going to have you back to discuss that in detail. Meantime, April Delaney is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care. We'll post a link to more information about the research challenge at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.